As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Matters of Life and Death. My name is Tim White, and as always, I'm joined by my dad, John White. Hi, Dad. Hi, Tim. And we're really pleased to say that we've got a guest on the show today. That's Ellie Cook. Hi, Ellie. How are you today? I'm doing really well. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, it's fantastic to be able to um, speak with you today. Before we kick off our conversation, would you mind kind of briefly explaining who you are and and what you do? Yeah. Yeah. So I um, live in London. I work at All Souls Church, um, which is where John um, is a member. And I am the student worker there. Um, been doing student ministry for 15 years so previously I worked for UCCF which is the Christian Union Movement um, up in Newcastle and Durham and um, I also studied theology at university so I did my first degree at um, the University of St Andrews in Scotland and then um, did a master's um, particularly thinking about um, biblical studies portrayals of women in the Old Testament at Durham Fantastic. Well, we're really pleased you were able to come on the show. Um, and, and that last little bit might give people a little bit of a hint about what we're talking about today, which is um, a kind of broad, a broad topic of, of women and Christianity, or, or more specifically, discussing this idea that's been floating around, is Christianity bad news um, for women? Um, we're going to come on to hopefully your particular kind of area of expertise about women in the Old Testament um, later on. But just to kick us off as, a, as an incredibly broad and, and uh, question, how, how do you answer the question when someone says, how can you be a Christian and a woman? Isn't Christianity bad news? Yeah, I get asked this question a lot and actually have done a few kind of um, apologetics um, talks at universities on this particular subject, because it is a big, it is a big issue, particularly for students and um, for women. Um, and I think certainly it has been a bit of a challenge for me in my faith as well to try and work out what that what that looks like um i mean i think the the big picture is absolutely christianity is good news for women and i think particularly as you kind of look at the early church and see um particularly in those kind of beginnings of the church and beginnings of christianity the the impact that christianity had on freedom for women um in all sorts of areas particularly kind of marriage um there is there's loads to kind of commend Christianity I think um there certainly are challenges to that as well and I guess in the way that um the church 
has sort of treated women. Um, sometimes there are there are issues there, and I think often it feels like sort of I guess modern feminism, um, current feminism, feels like it's is quite the opposite of Christianity of, um, I suppose what we would want, um, what what sort of modern feminism would want to say about what it looks like to be free as a woman, what it looks like to be kind of independent and. Um, free to be who you are um, so there are definitely some challenges but on the whole my headline has always been it is a good it's a good thing and do you understand why this question is coming up kind of more and more these days do you think there are particular kind of you know st- bad news stories coming out of the church in recent times or particular reasons why young women in particular might conclude that Christianity is just not something that you can kind of enter into yeah, I mean, I think there's probably a couple of different things. One, I suppose, would be just in terms of, um, I suppose, what it is to be a Christian and what um, what the Bible says about um, what it what it means to follow Christ does in a lots of ways for not just women, for for men as well. The idea of what it means to submit to one another, to submit to Christ, to kind of not um, to give over your um, to give over your freedom, I suppose, in some ways to somebody else feels really anti just everything about our kind of current culture. And I think probably um, that has been that the burden of that has probably been on women more. Um, we see that, I think, as with every um, sphere of life. Um, Christians are not immune from abuses of power and we've seen I think more of that um, at least we see more of that spoken about in the last couple of years with various kind of church and um, charity kind of um, exposés I suppose and scandals um, and that I suppose within the kind of culture and the discussions around Me Too um, and obviously those began in secular places in Hollywood and politics and things but they've then quite quickly been seen we've seen that they kind of have worked themselves out in church as well so I think that the fact that there is that going on um is tricky but then I think also so much of modern feminism um has focused on sexuality so what does it mean to be free basically means it means freedom for my body for my sexual choices for what I what I do and again the kind of Christianity and the Christian faith is going to say stuff about that that people that people disagree with. And I think some of that, some of the kind of Christian emphases, particularly the there's been a, a burden on women. There's been lots of conversations around purity, which is really I think unbiblical. Actually, the way that it's been phrased and the way that it's been portrayed, but there is also some reality in that of your body is not your own; it belongs to Christ, and so actually. Um, that really does conflict with a lot of of kind of current feminist thought. So there's a lot to unpick there, Ali. Thanks so much. It's really really fascinating discussion. So if we just go back to this thing about submission, um, you know, I totally get that. You know, because obviously in the whole field of ethics, contemporary ethics, including in medical ethics. The, the central idea is autonomy. It is my life. It is my choice. I am the master of, of my life. And 
I I control things and and the idea of then submitting to other voluntarily submitting to other people seems completely countercultural and and it seems restrictive and damaging and and all the rest and and yet as you say here we have in Christianity this whole concept of of mutual submission and, and Paul saying submit yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ um, so that is a totally countercultural uh, concept, isn't it? But as you say, you know, what I can see is so often um, that is then said, so the women must submit to me, um, you know, because uh, so, so, that, so that so often that concept of mutual submission turns out to be men dominating women. Yeah, not that mutual. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And I guess it's, it's easy for us, I think, who are convinced that Christianity is not bad news for women, maybe to kind of be a bit dismissive about some of people's concerns. But actually, I think, as you as you mentioned, you know, there is a, a slightly shameful history in the church, including up to the present day, where a lot of church kind of structures and institutions and culture has developed, which to the outside world, very into a fair analysis, does look like bad news for women, you know, where, you know, expressions of, of church where women have been, you know, effectively told they're second class citizens and you know famous mega church pastors who have given sermons saying that women you know can't refuse sex to their husbands even if they don't want to and things like that so I I wonder whether there is actually as much as I I think it's really critical that we that we push back at the idea that you know it's bad news for women there is maybe a, a space for saying but we acknowledge and understand that actually we've as as God's people have fallen incredibly short of the good news that Jesus proclaimed 2,000 years ago yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, I think it's it's a recognising, isn't it, that actually that isn't, it's not just Christians where that's happening, that it's not just churches where that's happening, but it feels, it feels worse because we should be being held to a higher standard. We should, there should be something different about us. And actually that's not, that's often not where the difference is. Um, mm. And it, and often it doesn't, it might look, yeah, the kind of, um, the way that power structures work out and the way that kind of sexism, misogyny, et cetera, work out might look different, but actually at the heart of it, there, there's the same, similar stuff going on. Um, and I think we have to reckon with that. And, and also, I guess, just realise that, you know, um, we, you know, we can talk about this, but I, I guess the, the way that people understand scripture and the way that people understand particularly what, what the Bible says about the roles of men and women in marriage and in church, there are different interpretations of that. And so therefore for one church and one community, um, what they consider to actually be um, a positive and helpful way of understanding submission to another church and another group of Christians is going to look abusive. And we have to manage our expectations there and be able to manage the conversation there as well, which is just hard to do when you have different expectations. And so there's a whole spectrum, isn't there, between, on the one hand, the sort of very obvious abuse scandals, which, you know, the church has been beset by and continues to be beset by uh, here in the UK and elsewhere in the USA and so on. And it is very striking to me that, that virtually every single abuse scandal that's hit the headlines has involved a man. You know, they've been these powerful, charming... You know, inverted commas, charismatic, 
persuasive men who have turned out to be abusing their power, often in very dramatic ways, uh, both over men and but very frequently over women. But then, then there's the the lesser, just the continual sort of it, it, coercion, which wouldn't meet standards of abuse, but but which is just uh, which which is effect um, some form of abuse of power, um, and, and in a way, part of the problem I think in the discussion is trying to deal with both things. At the same time, because they're not the same, are they? The sort of the obvious abuse scandals which we're aware of is not the same as the kind of low level uh, coercion control, which unfortunately is still quite common. Yeah. Yeah. And and again, I think that is something that we see. Yeah, we see it in, we see it out of the church that like in some ways, like Me Too is a kind of classic example of this, of um, people raising really big legitimate awful stories um and other people talking about things that are bad but not as bad um or kind of you know there's a difference between somebody being um sexually assaulted and someone being looked at um there's a difference between kind of microaggressions and aggression aggressions and actually when you label everything the same it does that that's not helpful because it actually really lessens the weight and the impact of the more serious stuff and i think probably similarly that's happened um in the church as well um but like you say we've got to try and i suppose manage not just those and and kind of think about not just those big big stories but actually the the everyday realities but recognizing that actually some people people are going to disagree on whether that is wrong whether that is abusive whether that is um coercion i suppose and that's just really tricky to to deal with i suppose of um yeah i think having having had conversations with people in the past where when i've expressed my view or perspective or experience have been um on the one hand told you're overreacting and on the other hand been told you're being coerced and you don't even realize it and actually the kind of the irony of of both of those of the kind of um yeah just the particularly in in conversations about you know um autonomy and intelligence of women and all of those sorts of things being told that i don't really understand how badly I'm being treated and if I were a bit more intelligent then I would realize um it's you know a fun a fun experience <laughs> uh, have you been following there's a really interesting conversation happening particularly across the Atlantic in the states among evangelicalism um around uh this idea that so that you know there's a there's a famous book uh, by John Piper and Wayne Grudem called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood which was kind of you know kickstarted the kind of renaissance of complementarianism in the last kind of 20 30 years and then there was a you're probably aware amy bird a, a scholar in america wrote a book called recovering from biblical manhood and womanhood and and there's a kind of related discussion about you know putting aside our particular interpretation of you know should women be pastors or not um 
there's a kind of increasing critique from people from within the complementarian world saying, actually, even aside in our, in our thinking on, you know, should women teach the Bible in church from the pulpit or not, we have to acknowledge that so-called like biblical manhood and womanhood or complementarianism has fostered a kind of anti-women culture and has been and has allowed kind of obviously unbiblical anti-women kind of thinking separate from that theological debate to kind of grow and, and take root. Have you been following, do you have any thoughts on that kind of conversation yeah, at all? Absolutely, yeah. I think, yeah, I think it's particularly the challenge of what is, um, trying to understand what the difference is between biblical and cultural, and that actually often those two things get equated. So actually what you end up with is, I don't know, a kind of Victorian um, culture or a 1950s American culture being presented as biblical and so then in terms of what does that look like for roles of men and women that means women staying at home and not going out to work it means um, women dressing a particular way it means men dressing a particular way having particular kinds of haircuts having particular kind of jobs um and and actually when you then try and compare that to actual biblical culture um, they're really different from one another. Um, middle class, industrial culture is not the same as first century um, Israel in a kind of agrarian society. The idea that women wouldn't go out to work is just ludicrous because if you if you didn't go out to work, your family would starve because you have a farm and you need to work you need to do stuff um and so there's just a lot of um yeah there's a lot of misreading i think of scripture and um, and an inability to understand that it is it is a, it is true and it is god's word but it's also written into a particular culture and and if we're not if we're going to be lazy about understanding that culture then we are going to miss things and we are going to misunderstand things. Um, and so I think, yeah, there's, yeah, it's quite, it's, it's a frustration that actually um, the, yeah, this kind of, it's not, this conversation becomes then boiled down to very kind of particular understandings of how things are worked out rather than actually kind of close reading of the text and, and thinking sensibly about what, what that actually means in our churches and our families today and then I just also think like the whole complementarian egalitarian conversation essentially becomes meaningless because we don't agree on what we mean by those words so and I think particularly complementarian the range of what that how that works out is huge I think you know particularly kind of having um chatting to friends in America um, in churches there complementarian looks very very different from from what it looks like here in the UK um, and actually for me to say I'm an egalitarian or I'm a complementarian um, doesn't help anybody actually know what I mean or what that looks like in practice because yeah the range and the understanding is so broad um, and yet we just don't seem to be able to get away from these words. And it feels like they're this kind of central thing. And I suppose particularly the idea that complementarian is this kind of like um, 
long established theological word when in reality it's like 30 years old it just yeah it's um it's quite a frustrating way to have a conversation when we're using a word that we don't agree on what it means yeah i totally agree about the words and in fact i've made a kind of vow not to use those <laughs> words because i find it uh, as you say uh, these labels are often extremely unhelpful aren't they and and they they almost foster division misunderstanding and all the rest and it's talking about the reality that is uh, that's important i've often reflected you know that god's word you know has been given and inspired by the holy spirit to be relevant to people of all cultures of all ages over the last 2000 years and if you think of all the complete range of different cultural social uh, contexts who have received the word and tried to respond to the Holy Spirit. The idea that scriptures prescribes these precise roles, this is what men do, this is what women do. I mean, it's clearly ludicrous. It just, it, and as you say, it's often a very lazy kind of uh, biblical interpretation of, 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 just, of just seeing it through my own cultural spectacles and then just stopping there. Speaking of of words which have become contentious and um, obscuring rather than revealing truth, the other big issue I want we wanted to discuss on this issue was this idea of feminism and Christian feminism. Uh, feminism, as everyone knows, is a word which kind of yeah, it's very contested. I think within kind of evangelical circles, um, you know, I'm very happy to call myself a Christian feminist, but I know other people would be slightly shocked to hear that or, or would kind of very strongly resist the idea. Um, what's your what's your approach? Do you think that's again? Do you think that's a word that we should shy away from and talk about the real issues of how it works and in practice, or or would you be happy to claim the label for yourself? Yeah, I'm definitely happy to claim it for myself, and I will. I think, but I do think it probably does then require a conversation about what does that mean. I, but I think what's interesting is actually that's not is not unique to Christian circles. Actually, at, um, outside of the church, there's also real suspicion around the word, and there has been. Um, for a while and there has been in different um, groups and for different reasons and so certainly would have had um, conversations probably five or six years ago with students where they would have been some would have been very proud to talk about being feminist some would have been much more reluctant because they didn't want to be seen as being like somebody who hated men and that is a bit of a kind of old an old trope I suppose but then others because uh trying to kind of think about the idea of kind of um intersectional feminism and so sort of where feminism has been or would have yeah I suppose would have been sort of six or seven years ago um there would have been lots of conversations around what do we mean by what do you mean by feminism um are you you know are you just a kind of western white privileged feminist or do you care about other types of people um i think now um increasingly there's a there's a debate or a kind of split over um what does it mean to be a woman and um can and so i think you know a, a disagreement amongst feminists about whether you can be a feminist um and be um well i suppose does feminism mean transphobe and so that's probably the new the new tricky 
thing to call yourself a feminist means that you are potentially a turf um and so that yeah it there's all it, it's always controversial i think it's not yeah it's not only controversial to call yourself feminist within the church it's wherever you are it's another example isn't it of how labels i think are, are so often problematic and you know we see this a lot don't we in in contemporary society this the, the you know so much of the battles in in the public arena are really around labels and how you self-identify and 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 what the implications are of how you self-identify and it it seems like a, just a a terrible source of misunderstanding and and antagonism and aggression and so on and i again i i just feel that actually avoiding potentially um confusing and misinterpretable words is better and let's talk about the reality let's talk about what we actually believe and what we're committed to mm. yeah i mean yeah and i and i think I, I agree with that to an extent but then i'm also i find it frustrating that we then lose words because and i think i suppose probably what i i mean, and i think increasingly i would have done this um that when people asked, are you a feminist? I would be like, yeah, absolutely. Because there's particularly in kind of doing evangelism, doing apologetics on campus, there would have been a real assumption that you can't be a feminist and a Christian. And for some women, that would have been the real, that would have been a big sticking point um, for their considering faith, considering Christ, um, would be that actually to be a woman, to be a feminist is something that they hold very closely and so for me to be able to say, I am a Christian, I am a feminist, immediately kind of opens up um, the conversation. And the amount of times that I would do one of those talks and you could tell, um, you, you know, people were texting questions or submit a question anonymously and you could tell when they'd submitted it um, before the talk had even began because it would be, why why aren't you a feminist? I'd be like, well, I've just spent 20 minutes explaining that I am. So clearly <laughs> that was a question. Either you haven't listened or that was a question you asked in advance mm. because you assumed that that would be the answer. So I think that's kind of meant that I have wanted to use it more, but I do, I do feel like I have to explain that a lot, both now outside of, of um, church, but within church a lot more, sort of defend the idea of being able to call myself that. And I think I really agree with you that while it's obvious that the label is is unhelpful in some terms, I think it would be a shame if we were just to let it slide away into history, because not only for the kind of outward facing apologetics reasons you just explained really well, Ellie, I actually think, again, I think it's a really important conversation we need to have within the church, because like we talked about with complementarianism, there is, you know, there's always a danger that um, when we, if we decide to interpret those biblical passages and tradition in in one way which is a legitimate you know i would defend people's right to do that there is always a danger that it bleeds over into a kind of casual cultural misogyny mm -hmm. without us noticing and so i think it's actually quite almost as a provocative challenge to you know because i do i would define feminist as you know believe that women should have the same social political legal and civil rights as men yeah. which i'd like to believe no christian could disagree with yeah. and so i think in that sense i would defend the idea that every christian must be a feminist by default if you believe that women are created equally in the image of god but i think because there's this risk of 
of, as we talked about, kind of cu cultural confusion between our theology and our culture. And I also believe that, you know, men have an abiding sin towards patriarchy and sexism. And so we need all need to be alive to that. I actually think it's quite helpful to have this some slightly challenging provocative word and to keep using it within Christian circles because it generates this particular conversation we're having right now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom Wright's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help us keep these resources and podcasts like Ask N.T. Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash matters of life and death. That's premierinsight.org forward slash matters of life and death. Thank you. You are listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. So you spend quite a lot of time talking to uh, young people on campus, uh, both people who are both from a Christian point of view and, and, and those who aren't. And um, I'm very interested and concerned about all the evidence showing a sort of progressive rise in um, mental health concerns uh, amongst young people. And particularly what the evidence shows is that it's much more amongst young women than it is amongst young men. And uh, you you come across a lot of young women. What's your impression about that? Do you think that that is a, an accurate reflection of what's going on with young women at the moment? And, and if so, what are the underlying forces and causes here? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think it, prob it probably is. I think, obviously, there's lots of conversations around um, mental health issues amongst men, and particularly, I suppose, the, the fact that young men are, are less likely to talk about it than women are um, because they've kind of been conditioned not to speak about their feelings. I think amongst women there are pressures um, that are... I, I think there are pressures around all sorts of different areas. So I think um, there's a there's a push, and I think this comes from the kind of feminist agenda of you can do everything um that that says you should be able to you should do everything you should excel at everything and so actually you should get the best grades you should um look beautiful you should um you know be confident and happy and um you should free you should feel free about your sexuality and i think all of those pressures combined um are heavy on on women i think 
the despite the Me Too movement, um, it's not any safer for young women um, than it has been. Um, and actually possibly women are feeling more um, on edge. And you hear a lot about that, about young girls, um, you know, school girls talking about how fearful they are. Um, there was a report that came out a couple of weeks ago, a um, big survey of, of teenagers about what they were concerned about. And lots of that was was young teenage girls talking about how unsafe they felt um talking about the fact that they have to like have various routes home so that if they get followed they know another way to go they've kind of planned for that they're sort of lot yet yeah, lots of stories of of being harassed and trying to work out what and that just that that level of stress that you have to think about am i going to be attacked am i safe um every time you leave the house is a, is just that's real heavy. Um, that's a real heavy burden to bear. Um, but then alongside that, then an expectation that you be, um, that sex isn't that big of a deal. So you should um, be casual in the way that you have relationships and you should be free and easy about all of those things. And, and you, and you're not allowed to um, find that hard because that's to deny your freedom as a woman. So actually, if you have sex with somebody and it and it is not a good experience or you don't feel like you actually wanted to um, or you feel heartbroken about the fact that you have, you're not allowed to talk about that because that's a, that's a kind of um, betrayal of the freedom that you have as a, as a young woman. Um, yeah, so I think just the pressures are, are big. Um, to yeah to look like everything is is always good all of the time um when actually and, and, life is hard yeah i mean that it's it's it sounds terrible doesn't it i mean if you put all that stuff together <laughs> yeah. you think good grief i mean presumably young women who are in the church and who are committed christians <clears throat> to some extent would would feel less of those pressures or is that not true basically are they feeling the same kind of thing i mean Young um, Christian people's attitudes to sex, for instance, and and uh, so on. Yeah, I think probably. Yeah, I certainly would hope that their, this the kind of sex, sexual ethics are different, and therefore that at least that pressure is gone. But I do think it comes in different ways. That actually, um, certainly there'd be a decent number of of um, Christian young people who are um, know how they ought to behave but they're also dealing with the pressures of their peers and therefore are, are you know, going to be led along those ways. So actually just because they know they ought not to be having sex doesn't mean that they aren't. Um, just because they know they ought not to be asking each other for pics on um, Snapchat doesn't mean that they're not. Um, but then you have to then add the fact that they then don't really have anyone to talk to about that because they know that they shouldn't and therefore they're kind of guilt um, that actually if they are having sex, they're not going to be talking about it with anyone. So then they're not going to have the kind of um, places to receive help um, and care um, because they're going to, they know that they're going to have, they're going to get judgment or they assume that they will. Um, and so that I think probably adds the burden and then I think just in terms of the the pressures to succeed that's absolutely there within the church as well that 
you know, lots of the students. I think this has been particularly something we've seen over the last couple of years. There's a huge level of kind of um, imposter syndrome amongst um, current students, particularly those who didn't take exams because of COVID. Um, so didn't sit their A-levels, didn't sit their GCSEs. And so therefore there's a kind of, am I going to manage university? Would I have got in under normal circumstances? Do I really belong here? The kind of normal imposter syndrome of turning up at university and feeling like everyone is cleverer than you has just like tripled. Um, and the job market is harder and the climate is design, you know, dying and all of this kind of everything looks bleak and the future looks bleak and the pressure is on to be the one who wins. Um, and I don't think that is not there at church. So, And we talked a little bit earlier about the fact that we all three of us believe that Christianity is good news for women and that that was equally true for first century kind of women living in this agrarian lifestyle in a quite patriarchal society. Um, and Jesus kind of spoke words of liberation for, for women in that culture. And now we have, you know, 21 centuries later, women experiencing completely different types of pressure and strain, um, oppression, you might, if you want to use that language, how can we tell the same gospel in a way that makes sense to those young women experiencing what you're talking about? How can we explain to them that Jesus has come to kind of, you know, that his burden is easy and his yoke is light? And and how does that, how do we apply that unchanging gospel to the particular circumstances of, of women and young girls struggling with what you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, I guess probably in the same way that we always have, we just need to say it louder. Um, I think the... Um, the 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 fact that the world looks very bleak is not true because of Jesus and so actually to know that there is that he is uh, the hope that we have that he gives us confidence and certainty of a good future is something to to really hold on to and that is really good news um i think yeah to to help the it, the challenge for students often is that they are even ones who are coming from lovely godly christian families who have brought them up to tell them that actually your worth is not in your grades and your you know what how you appear your worth is in christ it's very hard to hold on to that and say that when actually the pressure is on those parents and on those families that their child succeeds and, you know, gets a job and moves out of the house and gets a mortgage and all of those sorts of things. And so actually to, there's a, there's a, I think there's a pressure not just on the young people, but on their parents to kind of know that that is true and to really say that and believe it and not give in to the pressure of um, competing with everybody else's Christmas letter or whatever it is that is the the big burden um but I also think particularly on kind of sexuality and sexual ethics and what we how we think about our bodies and all of those sorts of things we have to um we have to talk about it more um we have to um I think help people and help young people see that um there is a there's a 
a really great standard and a really great thing to aim for but there's also grace and mercy and forgiveness um i think particularly the kind of conversations around purity culture um have been a, a particular burden on young women um in the church that the way that those things are spoken about essentially says to girls and i mean particularly girls that actually if you make a mistake you've you're ruined and that's the end of that really um and actually that's so anti-gospel um the way that it talks about the way that purity culture presents um us is the idea that we are pure and then we are ruined by sex the way that the gospel speaks about us is that we are sinful and then we are clothed with Christ. Like, it's just the opposite. It's the opposite of what is is being said. And so actually to be able to present that to people to say, this is not, you're not about, you're not losing your innocence. You are gaining purity and forgiveness in Jesus. Um, and therefore that is, that is true. And that remains true, whatever you have done or whatever you will do really actually of course it's better and it's good to wait and to be um in a committed relationship and all of those sorts of things but actually whatever you do and whatever has happened there's forgiveness and there's hope and there's um good goodness for you not because of what you have done but because of what jesus has done and what he who he's made you to be um but I just think we we are often the way we're we're teaching young people badly because we don't really believe it ourselves, um, which is really problematic. I mean that definitely rings true for my own experience as a, as a teenager twenty years ago, kind of encountering just in kind of glimpses, that, which is much more prominent in America. I know this kind of purity culture and. Um, and even in, in little ways, there was this kind of subconscious sense that um, women in particular were kind of all the, the girl, teenage girls in particular, were responsible for the kind of purity of the youth group in general. You know, and we would go on a weekend away and they had to wear kind of baggy T-shirts over their swimming costumes so that our eyes wouldn't wander. But, you know, and it was just, um, yeah, when you step back from that, you actually realise, as you say, we are unhelpfully kind of enculturating we're just adding more we're loading more burdens on when actually you know in a culture which already says that women are problematic and you know calls them names if they are supposedly sexually promiscuous the idea that christianity would kind of build an even higher kind of edifice about that rather than as you say responding to that with with the the scandalous kind of grace of jesus is is sad um uh, should, should we move on to talk about a little bit about uh, the Bible and about your your kind of research and study in the Bible? Because I know that's um, something a lot of people have questions around. I guess the kind of headline question is, you know, I, I hear it from some some non-Christian friends that the the Bible is fundamentally a misogynistic document, uh, and and that is you know the root of um, why the church has kind of taken all these kind of patriarchal sexist turns over over thousands of years is because it is building from a fundamentally kind of poison source um when you study the old testament what's your conclusion do you think the bible is is misogynistic is it degrading to women uh, absolutely not um which is great um yeah 
that's yeah, it's a huge question. It's a huge question amongst um, biblical critics as well of is this, I suppose, particularly my master's dissertation, one of the questions I was wanting to, to deal with was, is the Bible good for women? Um, actually, are those stories particularly around sexual violence um like should we read them and what does it mean to do that and to do it well um and helpfully and if we believe that all scripture is good um and useful and all of that sort of you know second timothy stuff um what does that mean for stories about um rape and dismemberment and child sacrifice and all those sorts of things um, and I think part of the problem often is a, just a real misunderstanding of what the Old Testament, particularly Old Testament narrative, is trying to do. So actually, we are not. We we I think the the kind of rumor and the perception of the Bible, particularly outside of the church, but sometimes within the church as well, is that the Bible is a kind of um, uh, how to guide to live. Um, and obviously there are parts of it that are and there are parts of it that are very much this is you know follow these rules and you know it will be well with you that's legit but there are also parts of it where they are not that's not what they're trying to do they're telling us about stuff rather than telling us how to do things and um particularly when we read the the torah and the first five books um the the way that they're structured and the way that that is put together is you're reading a story of God's people, but in the middle of that story, we get the law. So that's the kind of this really central part of Exodus where Moses is given the 10 commandments, but he's given the rest of the law as well. And, and the idea is that the God's people are to know that and to write it on their door frames and to teach it to their children, because that's how they're going to be, that's gonna. That's how they're going to live in relationship with God. And so, therefore, if you know that law, you, you, that makes sense of what else is going on around it. So, actually, sometimes the frustration will be, um, you'll we might read a story of, for example, um, somebody, um, raping somebody else, and there isn't kind of narrator commentary on that. The narrator doesn't say. And that was a terrible thing for that person to have done. And because of that, then people go, okay, well, then therefore it can't be terrible because the narrator would have said so. And yet the way that you're supposed to read this is nobody needs to tell you that that's terrible because you know God's law and therefore you know that it's terrible. Um, The narrator very rarely comments at all on the kind of ethics of what's going on um, because it's it's assumed that the people know that it's wrong because they know God's law and they know God. Um, and so if we, that, that, that's part of the beginning of the problem. And actually my, my dissertation particularly was on looking at second um, Samuel. So the, the story of um, David and his family, but particularly the, the, the story of the rape of Tamar, who's David's daughter by her half brother Amnon. And it's a brutal story, um, but it's also a really interesting story because of all of the stories of violence against women in the Old Testament, that's the only one where the victim speaks. Um, so we we hear her views on what's going on. And that kind of 
um, helps us to understand both what's happening in that story, but also what's going on in some of the other stories um, that are similar. And it essentially what we get in Tamar's words are a kind of a, a God's prophetic voice coming through her. So actually when she speaks and she tells her brother, don't do this thing, you'll be a fool in Israel if you do. That's God saying that to him. And that helps us then to understand what it is that God thinks about Amnon and therefore what God thinks about sexual violence, about violence against women. Um, And certainly in terms of what I was thinking about, what I was looking at in my in my research was going, okay. well, actually, if if I'm if I'm meeting with somebody who's experienced sexual violence, it might look and it might seem like that would be the worst passage to look at together, but actually it could be one of the best because it helps to um, show that their experience is, is not unique. And often that can be an issue for victims of violence, that it feels like they're the only person who's gone through that. And so to say, no, actually, look, here's this story in this really old book um, that, that says, yes, this happens and it's terrible and it shouldn't have been done to you, and God hates that it did happen to you. And then as we read the rest of scripture, we see that actually he's going to do something about it, that justice will come, even though it hasn't come in your experience, and it may not in your lifetime. Justice will come, and that is really, really good news. Um, And so there's just so much, um, there's so much beauty and hope even in those really ugly stories, um, which is why I think reading the Old Testament is such a great thing to do. Um, but yeah, it's it's hard. It's hard reading, but um, it's really important as well. And what do you, because I think it's, it's one thing to say, you know, which is really helpful and, and often overlooked by Christians and non-Christians, as you said, that we know we need to reckon with the fact that these are, you know, painfully truthful stories about a deeply broken society in many ways that wasn't living God's way and where and where men in particular were using and abusing their power over women and and as you say the absence of condemnation does not mean that God approved it but what about when you go to you know some people might say you look at the actual law itself and some of the regulations around you know when women are on their periods they are you know expelled from the camp because they're unclean does that not seem to kind of this is God's handing down his actual prescription um of how they should live and live well and yet it seems to be degrading dehumanizing stigmatizing women saying that they're dirty and unclean and impure H- how do you kind of wrestle with those those kind of passages yeah um great question i think um partly again it just requires us to do really close work on the text and understand what's going on with the law um and particularly i think to understand um what it means for someone to be unclean versus being sinful and that those things aren't necessarily um together but also to understand what it means for um the way that we as humans are versus the way that god is um and so a lot of the law is about recognizing um that he is holy and we're not um and i think particularly when it comes to women and um periods there is some real it's a really hard it's a really hard work to try and get our heads around um and there is a, there are a variety of kind of different understandings of what's going on there 
um, none of which, well, various different people interpret it in various different ways. I think um, one of the the ones, the things I found most persuasive is um, to do with the idea of blood and life and how important that is in terms of um, Old Testament law, that actually um, life life is in blood. And that's how we understand, that's how everything is understood. So particularly you see that in terms of sacrifices and kosher meat and all of those things that are sort of still, they're still sort of worked out Um today that actually you don't consume blood because that's where the life is that to shed blood is a really serious thing whether that I mean particularly when that's a human but um when it's anything like blood being shed is is serious because God has created life and um to kind of mess with that is 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 a really serious thing to do um and so what we see I think particularly in in kind of laws around periods is a kind of recognition of that, of the fact that um, life is important, blood is important. Um, And um, I suppose the idea of what is going on with someone's period uh, is, is the kind of potential for life that, and new life that isn't there. And obviously that is, you know, complicated. And we're not saying that every time that somebody has their period, that's, you know, a baby gone because that's not how it works but there is that kind of that idea of and that sort of um would be potential and so it's a it's a it's a recognition of that it's not saying that women are sinful or bad but it is saying to be human is and is to kind of deal with that reality and that actually part of what it means to be human particularly in the old testament is to be sinful is to be outside of God's plan and how he wants things to be. And I suppose the burden of being a woman is that that we see some of that idea of kind of death and of loss in in that reality of of having a period every month and, and managing that. And it's and it's not saying you are sinful and you've done something wrong, but it is saying this is a this is it's about recognizing what's what this symbolizes in the same way that in um, Luke's gospel, Jesus is talking to um, some some crowds and they're asking questions about this group of um, pilgrims who were killed by Pilate. And um, there's sort of this question of like, why has this happened? Why has this tragedy occurred? Were they Did they do something wrong? How are we supposed to understand this? Again, it's a kind of conversation about the meaning of suffering, I suppose. And Jesus says like, there's, they didn't do anything wrong. There wasn't. They aren't worse than anybody else. He then talks about this story of a tower that had fallen and killed some construction workers, I guess. And again, he's like, that isn't that isn't saying those particular people did something worse, but both of those things that have happened should essentially wake you up to the reality of of living in this world that death is coming, and you need to be right with God when that comes, and. There are so many things in the world that do that, that remind us of the realities of the life that we're living away from God and 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 put and should push us back to him. And therefore, and there's something about that in in having a period and having to then um, remain separate during that time. Not I just wanted to slightly correct you there, um, Tim, is that you don't get cast out of the camp 
for do for having your period you just have to not touch people so you're allowed to still live in your tent you just have to you know not touch other people while you're doing it which is tricky um but and then to kind of have this sort of ritual cleansing at the end every time is to say is to wake us up to the reality of we are we have been separate from god because of the fact that we are sinful and he is holy and so it's a there's a burden about it but there's also a goodness about it that actually you get this reminder once a month that you need to be right with god that you are right with god because of what he's provided um so that yeah so i think it's trying to then understand what's going on make sense of the law fit that all together and then yeah see the blessing in it which is um tricky sometimes gosh it's a fascinating discussion isn't it and uh, there's so many different ways we could take this but i'm conscious of the time <laughs> yeah i think we're probably I don't know what, Tim, do you want to <laughs> Yeah, I just wanted yeah. to say, just briefly to wrap that point up, because and, and what is really helpful about that is that when you trace that theme of blood and life through to the New Testament, it unlocks a mm. lot of what the New Testament writers talk about yeah. the cross and why they emphasize so much about Jesus's blood being shed for us. And then you also yeah. see the power of miracles like the one where the woman who has been bleeding internally for so many years is healed in the crowd. And, and and that's not just a wonderful, miraculous medical healing, but it's also got this laden with kind of spiritual significance in terms of, you know, she would have been ceremonially unclean for all that time and so therefore totally ostracized. But also Jesus yeah. is saying, you know, I have come to put an end to the kind of uncleanliness that blood brings about through my blood and I'm going to make you clean and, and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it, it, it's complicated yeah, and it's, it's, it's heavy, but it actually, if we can trace these lines through, it really gives us fresh insight into gospel and the cross and all of that is all that is going on maybe that was more obvious for some of you know the jews who became christians in the first century than for us 21st century gentiles but we are as as dad says we are running out of time so unfortunately we'll have to draw there's so much more we could say and maybe we'll try and get you back on another time early to pick up some other threads around feminism and christianity and women because it's a it's a brilliant thing to be talking about so thank you very much for coming on and sharing some of your thoughts and your expertise ellie um thank you everyone for listening um as always you can get in touch with us if you've got any questions or feedback we'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode or what we've been talking about or, or suggestions of other things we should explore you can um email us by contacting molad m-o-l-a-d at premier.org.uk um, and do head over to dad's website johnwyatt.com if you're looking for something interesting to stimulate your own thinking about lots of things lots of videos and talks and other podcasts um, but yeah we will uh, we'll wrap it up there thanks for listening and we'll uh, be back next week with another episode bye bye you've been listening to matters of life and death a podcast from premier unbelievable